G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. Good everyone. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast as we uh, creep ever closer to Christmas. Just nine sleeps away now and uh, still plenty to discuss on this program, which probably won't surprise you. We're not bad with a word or 17 uh, plenty of footy news. We've got our usual segments, final and video, life hacks, and the rant off, of course, as I say. A very good morning to my footyology co-host, Mark Fine. How are you doing, Finey? I'm well, Rogo. I am well. I enjoyed the little heat wave that we had. Do you like the hot weather? Uh, no, I don't think I do, to be honest. As I get older, I did when I was a kid, but uh, yeah, it's harder to get cool than it is to get warm, I reckon. Yeah, I love hot weather. Uh, get around in barely anything, just a pair of shorts and suntan lotion. But yeah, no, I love it. And I enjoyed the little burst we had. So any hot weather, send it down to Melbourne. Well, it seems to have receded quickly enough. I reckon the hot weather's got later too. Are you in that school of thought that the seasons have moved? We don't seem to, you know, get really hot weather now until the new year. True, true. December used to, you know, how did the song go? Swelter on Christmas Day, on Merry Christmas Day. I certainly remember some really hot days before school broke up early December and they're a rarity now, aren't they? They are, they are, and of course, uh, back in our day, no air-conditioned classrooms to speak of, but uh, we never got the special dispensation to head home when the temperature got over, what was it, No, 37 or whatever it was. How about that technicality that the kids jump all over when it gets to 23? It's luxury, it's luxury. Yeah, Yeah, they used to put us in furnaces when it got hot I'll clean clean them. I'll tell you what else is luxury, Finey, and that is the best hamburger in town. And I'd like you to elaborate on that for us all. Set the grillers to sizzle, the hot plates to very hot, because here comes the meat patty, that beautiful Aussie beef, ready to be sizzled up by expert staff. Let's not forget that it takes some expertise to get all the timings right for a perfect burger. These are not produced by a conveyor belt, Rowan. These are not produced pre-made patties that sit there waiting grey and and shriveled to be warmed up by some convection or microwave oven. These are cooked to order on the hot plate. You see them sizzle. And it is a bit of a, a master, you know, it, it's a master's craft to get the buns crisp but light ready at the same time as the patty with the melted cheese, all to receive the fresh vegetables. Where, where you say? Andrew's Hamburgers, say I. 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park for the best burger in town. I'm oh, sorry, I can't let that plug go without mentioning the vegetables dripping, beading 
with garden freshness. So fresh that when uh, they run out of the lettuce in one of the uh, the Bain Marie's there to make the burgers at Andrews, someone rushes out the back to the garden, picks a lettuce, has to shoo the rabbits away to get the lettuce, washes it, of course, and then in it goes straight into your hamburger. When we talk about freshness, we are not kidding. They don't come any fresher than Andrews hamburgers, as indeed home renovations don't come any fresher than the ones delivered by whom, Mark? Please note, Rowan's descriptions are figurative, not actual. The best home can only be made by a master craftsman, like a perfect burger, in a way. Assembled, on time, coordinated, designed by West Point Properties. Nick Spartels, Merry Christmas to everybody down there, including the Goose, Manny Maguire, Luke Ball, both learning the trade under the very best. It's a footy flavour because they're built houses for the likes of Scott Pendlebury, Dyson Apple, and Mike Sheehan. So if you love your footy, we know you do, you're footyologists, and you love a good home, think West Point Properties, Nick Spartels. And when you're kicking back in your freshly renovated home and chowing down on your fresh Andrews hamburger, think of us, fresh folk, at the Footyology Podcast because we sent you there and they are a couple of the best businesses in the business, if that makes sense. And it probably doesn't, which is probably a good cue to get started. On Footyology Newsfeed. All right, we've had the draft. Uh, we haven't had the fixture this year. That's, uh, well, this stage you'd say, look, it's looking like February we might get the fixture, but all the other bits and pieces that happen post-season uh, basically have happened now, but still plenty of footy news around. And uh, a bombshell of sorts the other evening, finally, when none other than Eduardo G. Maguire, actually, I don't know his middle initial, but Eddie Maguire, long-serving Collingwood president, announced in uh, typically understated fashion that... <laughs> Um, he would be hanging up the suit and tie as Collingwood president at the end of 2021. Thus, uh, well, bringing a premature end to his most recent term. I uh, actually would have had another year after the end of next year. Uh, he was voted in at the start of this year for another term. I think that made about 28. Uh, but no, look, all jokes aside, a pretty big, uh, moment in the football landscape. Finey, were you surprised by Eddie's um, decision to uh, end his presidency? CCL, my friend, CCL. Which Couldn't means? care less. Okay. <laughs> to quote the great Mo Makaki, strike me lucky. I can't name all of the AFL presidents or CEOs. I really can't. And I certainly can't name who's in their last year, and I certainly can't remember too many presidents doing a lap of honour for their final year by announcing that I've got a year to go, and I certainly can't remember presidents being fated like they've passed away in a plane crash, heaven forbid, with a victory-like praise with the announcement that there's a year to go. I mean... Well, yeah, I mean, I've got to be honest... I've got to be who honest. Who was St Gilda's previous president to Andrew Bassett? Uh, Greg Westaway. 
Um, was it? I don't know. No, I think there was no, no, it wasn't Greg Westaway. I can't remember. Between? Yeah, I can't remember his name, and I certainly can't remember him announcing he had a year to go. Yeah, no, look, I've got to be honest. When I I heard the news, I I thought, oh boy, this is, this is going to be a better farewell tour than uh, Whispering Jack, one of his fifty-eight farewell tours uh, when he supposedly retired from the music scene. Look, it's, I did want to talk about this in conceptual terms because it's funny how people sort of view the success or otherwise of a club president, and they do it with CEOs as well. I mean, <clears throat> look, but uh, I, I'm going to put in the qualifier here. I think you can say a couple of things about Ed as Collingwood president. One, when he took over at the end of 1998, they were in desperate trouble. They were a, a club that had uh, lost its grandeur, um, not nearly as big as they had been. Uh, success had been pretty elusive for a while. They were still in uh, what palpably were inadequate um, headquarters at Victoria Park, as historic as it was. So I, I w do give Eddie credit for a couple of key things. Look, one is getting them into modern furnishings at the, uh, what's it called now, the Lexus Centre. Um, I think that was a big move. I think his landing of a very, very big fish in coaching terms, Mick Malthouse, um, for, uh, for the 2000 season, I think that proved to be a very, very successful move. And I think, and, you know, yes, it was easier for Ed being the media uh, raconteur, if you like, but um, just his success in keeping Collingwood front and centre of the footy landscape, uh, that is a win in itself. The, the butts, um, well, they're pretty obvious, aren't they, as a, a series of gaffes over the years and um, uh, situations where he got the club into trouble, uh, the episode with Caroline Wilson, of course, talking about drowning her in an ice bath. Uh, the shocker with Adam Goods, um, which the ramifications of which are still being felt a good seven or eight years later. Um, Off-colour off remarks about uh, people at the coin toss, et cetera, et cetera. So there was a downside there too. But um, I don't know. It depends how you assess a presidency. Don't you think he deserves some credit for that, voice? You know, if we were at the pub row and I would have told you to shut the F up, two words into that review of his performance, but out of respect for the podcast and yourself, I'll let you finish. I'm not interested in reviewing somebody that's got a year to go in his presidency. Mm. It, it, what on earth? Who is he? Bob Menzies. When he finishes, we'll have a look at his, his performance. I just can't believe that there's there's amazing column inches devoted to the one-year-to-go presidency of Eddie Maguire. I'm sick of it. You know, I'm sick of Collingwood. I'm not sick of Collingwood, but I'm sick of this aura of, of, um, uh, of greatness and of some degree of elevation above all others devoted to everything from, you know, oh, where's... Uh, uh, where's Joffa now? Even though I like Joffa as a bloke, crosses to Fiji at the start of the final series. I wonder how he feels, by the way, that he's 
um, step grandson has been cleared from the club. You know that Ozzy Bosovan Luigi's sort of related by marriage quite closely to Joffa. I didn't know that. Happy. Yeah, he is. It's 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 his step grandson. Anyhow, but no, no, I, I I didn't do it for other presidents, and I ain't doing it for him. I couldn't care less. I couldn't care less that he's got a year to go. Honestly, I didn't know that he was re-elected with three years to go or two years to go. It's a president. It's the backroom boys. Yeah, oh no, I, I agree. I agree with all that. But, I mean, at some point, a president has to announce that he's standing down in favour of someone else. Yeah, I mean, sure. Couldn't sure, do but... it 30 seconds before the new one was appointed. No, but I'm pretty sure Brisbane's president, when he does it with a year to go, you know, won't receive the, won't receive the same... Oh, more analysis on Eddie Maguire's presidency and, uh, you know... News flash in the middle of the news. Wow, well done, Tony Jones. How did right. you get huh? Yeah. How did you get that one, Tony? Oh, that's right. You've worked with him in your most. Um, you know, spare me spare me the interest, because I don't. Well, I guess the um well the interesting contrast, and I, I wanted to bring this one up because he certainly doesn't deserve uh to go without comment, is the similar decision made by Geelong President Colin Carter. And uh, that was, you would have, I think you would have approved of the way that was done. That was basically just done in a press release. Um, Thank you. And, of course, there were no uh, sort of eulogies for, for Colin. But, it, but it, it did make me think of the irony of it because Colin, in some ways, as a person, is sort of the antithesis of Eddie. He's, he's quiet. He's reserved. But... Um, I, I do want to say uh, Colin Carter has been a very, very important figure in the uh, development of the AFL. Uh, and he was the man who uh, did a massive report on the then VFL back in the mid-80s, the Carter Report, which sort of paved the way for the national competition. He was then a long-serving AFL commissioner and uh, then straight onto the Geelong board and he's been the Geelong president for the last 10 years and um, a really deep thinker, Colin, and a lot of his strategies and ideas um, have been realised as the uh, national competition, the AFL, has grown exponentially. So, um, and it would it would be a shame if that were to pass without comment. I've had a fair bit to do with Colin. He's one of the, the nicest, most empathic, people in the football world and uh, by any measure I think he's been just as big a success as Geelong president as Eddie has as Collingwood president and you could argue that prior to that he probably did a a bit more for shaping the game um, as we know it today so again it it gets back to that point of making about perception Uh, Eddie of course is a a very very public figure so his work is always going to be more highlighted, but Colin Carter, I think, uh, really does deserve some plaudits for his work in the football space. Yeah, but he doesn't sit on his keister guiding various contestants, depending how much he likes them, towards correct answers on a quiz show. No, I don't. Well, that's the point I'm making for you. You're but I'm right. saying, I'm, I'm reiterating that point, you know, yeah. silly Colin. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, um, he, look, he, he really has been a very important figure over the last 30 years in the game. So congratulations to 
Colin Carter, who, unlike Eddie, isn't doing a farewell tour. He is actually uh, giving it away as Geelong president, effective immediately. So uh, there's the various administrative uh, comings and goings, or goings in this case. And speaking of goings, uh, another player retirement uh, announced in the last couple of days, former Richmond and uh, more recently, Western Bulldogs forward Sam Lloyd announcing uh, that he is giving his playing days away. Did that one surprise you, Fanny? Yeah, any of any announcement of retirements post trade draft, rookie draft, etc. It doesn't just surprise me; it surprises the club a bit. Gives them a spot that they can use still, sort of pre-season-ish or for a mid-season draft. Interestingly, there's a few clubs in that position. I note St Kilda have three such spots, which is a lot. But the Sam Lloyd uh, early retirement came about apparently because of a uh, pursuing his business career. So he must be involved in a pretty good business because there's good money in footy at the top level. Good player at his best. Wasn't he a um, dead-eyed dick and real capitaliser on opportunities up forward? Well, I thought he, uh, I thought he did particularly well in 2019, his first season at Western Bulldogs. 38 goals uh, for them, so two per game or thereabouts. Um, pretty decent effort. He's older than I thought. He's uh, he's actually turning 31 next March, so I guess that obviously is a factor too. But you know, the Bulldogs, their uh, playing stocks keep improving, don't they? Obviously scoop the pool at the draft with uh, number one pick, uh, young Jamara Hagen and um, Adam Trelaw, a pretty significant inclusion too. So it's going to be harder, not easier to get a game for the Western Bulldogs, which would have played a part as well. But look, Sam, um, in the end, uh, how many games? 89 games, 57 for Richmond and 32 for the Bulldogs. Came from the uh, VFL. Uh, played in VFL premierships, uh, missed out with the Tigers, unfortunately. Uh, just couldn't quite squeeze into their best side. But uh, plenty for him to be proud of in terms of his AFL career. Um, one thing we should mention just quickly, we've failed to uh, neglectful of us over the last couple of weeks. The AFLW, of course, cranking up in uh, January. They've brought the season forward a bit. January 28th, I think, is the... First round next season, but uh, some big news there in the elimination of the rather controversial conference system. Finding just back to one ladder now in AFLW. What, what do you make of that? Yeah, I think it's been universally well received because it certainly created an imbalance and there were uneven qualities of conferences. What the AFLW players, teams, are striving for, desperate for, is a proper season. And I think we need to very much work towards it in terms of everybody plays each other once because it's a nine-game season. And the other huge news, of course, Rowan, is that it's no longer free to go to the AFLW. Kids get in free, adults $10. I don't think that would affect... Certainly does not come on the radar for myself who intends to go with... uh, my footballing daughters to some games. I think $10 is a good first step or at least entry point for admission fees. What do you reckon? Uh, Yeah, I agree. It had to happen at some stage. I mean, the um, 
the downside will be, and it was the first thing I thought of, the inevitable uh, trolling from the uh, sort of Neanderthals out there who the whole time AFLW has been getting good crowds have gone, oh, yeah, but it's free. Wait till I start charging. So if the crowds aren't uh, big enough, there's going to be a whole lot of people set to pounce. But so what? I mean, they're becoming increasingly irrelevant to the discussion anyway. So You, you know why they think that? Why? Because it's always been free to masturbate and they're all wankers. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, there's a lot of them. Uh, you know, I mean, that just goes with the territory of women's sport, doesn't it? And uh, says obviously a lot more about the the men making those comments um, than it does about the competitions they're commenting on. But, uh, yeah, look, really looking forward to AFLW again. A sad end to last year, of course, when we got basically almost all the way through. And then uh, on the eve of the finals, of course, uh, they had to pull a pin on the competition. Um, so it'll be good to uh, pick up proceedings and hopefully the game will continue to thrive. And speaking of different forms of football competition finding. You put this one on the agenda and good on you for um, having tuned in and had a look. Uh, I'll leave you to uh, talk about the details. Of course you will, loser. Because what, the what mighty well, St Kilda beat Essendon in the grand final. Okay, what was it? The VWFL, the Victorian Wheelchair Football League. And if you go to the St Kilda website they have for quite a while now and I think I, I, I don't go to other clubs websites but there are if you look under teams then there's men's team women's team wheelchair team and blind team and St Kilda have recognized those teams ever since their inception the VWFL team plays in the Robert Rose Foundation competition has been there three seasons and no we're in no position down at Moorabbin to knock back silverware. So that very lonely 1966 trophy, well, it's got a couple of companions, a couple of night trophies and a reserve trophy from back in the day, but they, they are lonely chaps, get a new trophy as company and they had a good season. They won, they were uh, atop the home and away ladder. They had a big win in the prelim. Essendon actually had a last gasp win in the prelim over I think Richmond. Yeah, like I think they it won was Richmond. I did last see that. score of the game. Um, yeah. but, but I watched it and it, you know, it's as you would expect wheelchair football to be. It's handballing for goals. Pinpoint passing is the key to the game, but there's some good physical contesting of the ball. The one rule I think is can be a bit unfair is when St Kilda were a couple of goals ahead in the last quarter, keeping's off is possible and St Kilda really just iced the game from a long way out. So I would have liked to see maybe a maximum of three passes before you lose the ball. I think it's a bit unfair otherwise. Nevertheless, they, who's, who might have changed the rules, well done Saints, well done to all teams that compete. I think there are five clubs that compete. Uh, Essendon, Hawthorne, St Kilda, Richmond and the Bulldogs, I think make up the competition at the moment with growth expected. So, yeah, it's, it's football lovers who unfortunately are confined to wheelchairs. Uh, go and check it out because all clubs uh, have open days and accept trials. So the Bob Rose medal, yes, Bob Rose medal for best on the ground went to St Kilda captain, I think, Ryan Smith in the 99 shirt. 
And it was, uh, yeah, you never knock a flag down at St Kilda. So well done, boys and girls. A uh, serious question. Uh, are you allowed to, like, use the wheelchair as contact? You know, like... Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. yeah. and Essendon play got rudely tipped out in the last quarter in a marking contest. Oh, yeah, dear. there were a couple okay. of good intercepts. You see, obviously, wheelchair rugby is quite famous for its physicality. It's nowhere near as physical as that. But once again, these are genuine competitors, guys and girls who love their sport. And boy, if the uh, opposition, you know, if there's somebody in opposition colours, <laughs> they go right through them. And so did you burst into a hearty rendition of uh, Oh, When the Saints, finding uh, when they got up? Not as they got up, but I was, I was barricading my guts out for them. It was great. It was on live. Oh, well done. Well done. All right, congratulations, St Kilda. Uh, commiserations, Essendon. Uh, well done to everyone. In fact, I know a couple of people that are involved with that, so... Uh, well done, all concerned. Uh, great to see inclusiveness right the way through the football landscape. I think that's enough news for this week, Fonny. Uh, what say we we kick back and ponder the finer and perhaps not so fine things about life? Life hacks, building a better world. All right, I think we've got some. Uh, 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 Interesting array of observations this week in life hacks. I'm going to kick us off, Fanny, and at the risk of um, upsetting you, I wanted to put this on the agenda because it more as a, a philosophical question. So I know that you absolutely love this film. In fact, when you wrote your top 50 films for Footyology a few months back, you had this film coming in at number eight. It is your favourite Australian film. Um, I, incredibly, perhaps, have never seen this movie, but I sat down and watched it last night with my son, David, and I'm talking about Chopper, the uh, biopic, is that the right word, about uh, notorious criminal figure Mark Chopper Reed. So uh, I'll say this. It is a very, very well-made film. I can certainly appreciate that. Uh, some really interesting uh, camera techniques with the, you know, the sort of speeded up footage when they're all high as a kite and the lighting, as you've commented, is uh, very interesting. So, look, a, a really good job from a purely technical filmmaking standpoint. Uh, Eric Banner as Chopper is incredible. It is an amazing performance from him, no question about that. So don't get me wrong, I, I didn't. Well, I, I, I did appreciate the film. Did I like the film? Well, no. And that's not the film's fault. It's, it just sort of dawned on me that I really struggle with films where essentially the characters aren't likeable. And I also struggle a bit with the, I guess, glorification of um, ordinary people. And, uh, well... He's, he's no longer with us, so uh, I won't hopefully have a hit put on me for this. But, I mean, Chopper Reed, let's be honest, he did some pretty ordinary things over the journey. So uh, it was interesting. David, my son, he absolutely loved it. And he was sort of giggling at the various escapades Chopper got up to, like shooting people in the head and stuff, you know, oh, good for a laugh. 
But I, I don't know if I'm getting sort of more sensitive as I get older, but I just can't sort of empathise with people like that. And I think I struggle with movies where I can't sort of empathise with any characters at all. And I was sort of interested in my own reaction to it as much as anything. Um, I very quickly find he please indulge me. I thought it, it really sort of opens up that question about how do you rate a film, you know? So if you're giving your favourite films, that's pretty obvious. It's very subjective. But it's difficult to talk about great films if you don't really like a film. You don't like the subject matter or you don't like the people or the story that it's telling. So right off the top of my head, I sort of thought, okay, well, I'm going to come up with a list of Australian films I like, I like more than Chopper. So here it is. Uh, very quickly, Sunday Too Far Away, Don's Party, Two Hands, Lantana, Newsfront, Malcolm, The Big Steel, The Devil's Playground, The Year My Voice Broke, The Club, Wake in Fright, Gallipoli, and The Sum of Us. All of those films I sort of came away with feeling enriched for having seen the film. Uh, I didn't feel like that with Chopper. I felt like I had to have a good wash and look over my shoulder for the next five years. So does that all make sense or are you now seeding at me? Not at all. In fact, if you read my review of Chopper... I did, I did. I sort of point out that um, given the low budget, given the subject matter, given that the main role went to a... Uh, skit comedian really in his first starring role only had a you know was in the in the uh what's that one that everybody loves uh fast forward no 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 the one movie he was in you know um you know where they go down to wieldland and they got the house on the rickety bit of land oh the, the castle ca yeah so he was in the castle but you know this was really his breakout acting appearance acting lead role and Nobody would have thought it was going to be anything more than cringeworthy. And I guess that is part of the beauty of it, that immediately, even internationally, people got a sense that this bloke can really act. And uh, Chopper hated it. He, he spent, Eric spent time with Chopper prior to the movie and Chopper didn't want a, a bar of him after it because it, it looked into the soul of Chopper. And I think that's part of the beauty of the movie that, yeah, he, he's not a great person and he shouldn't be idolised. And he talks about how, you know, in the movie, Chopper talks about, you know, kids want their photo with me, and they, you know. And he loves the fact that he became famous in a way through notoriety. Well, he profited from it with the books. Yeah, correct. And Eric Banner is able to brilliantly, I believe, encapsulate the 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 truth the sort of truth of chopper that there were law you know there was a lot of showmanship there was a lot of crap to what he said there was a lot of um uh, of violence it didn't shy away from the fact that he beat his girlfriend you know it, that I, I think it was a, a, a honest portrayal of a very honest portrayal of an australian criminal right down to the bootstraps which is hard to do when you get that criminal involved in the pre-production um, of the movie by spending time with the star. So you sort of become 
associated with him and then it's hard to then turn around and do a portrayal that you're not you know he won't like because it is a mirror into his soul and beautifully acted by banner to pull it off now that is why i think it's a great movie if you don't connect with that character for all the great acting that you've admitted it's a well-made movie you're not going to connect with the movie but that's the beauty of um of, of opinion of of entertainment we ourselves on footyology stand to be assessed compared to other football podcasts and other uh, football journos who review, preview and talk about football. You're out there and it's fair game, as long as it's done fairly without malice not based on the product. So, yeah, I, I, hey, I would hate to think that everybody loved the movies that I loved because that would make me, you know, Mr McDonald's for dinner every night, wouldn't it? And, of course, the media plays a role too in the glorification of unsavoury characters, uh, you know, witness the continued um, uh, profile of someone like Mick Gatto, for example. I, um, I, never thought, I never thought you'd be singing from the same hymn book as um, uh, Alan Jones, but you sound like Alan Jones on, on the, what's her name, Kerry Ann show. Jesus, there's two people I didn't want to be mentioned in the same sentence as... All right, uh, your first life hack, please. Okay. One of the best of all times. Except when I read it, I thought, was it April 1st? But no, it's true. Uh, you know, what's my favourite drink, Rowan? Uh, oh, uh, isn't it cordial? Yep, I love cordial. Raspberry cordial? Yeah, all cordials. I love Schweppes raspberry. but I love Which a lot of people would say explains a lot. Yeah. Uh, Cotty's Cordial and the very famous Bigfoot's Cordial. Have you heard oh, yeah. that? No, no, what... I, I've drunk Bigfoot's. Yeah, I like it. Have you heard what's happened with Bigfoot's? No, I haven't. Okay, this was only discovered by a woman in the last week. So, hang on, wait, is this your life hack or is this a prequel? This is the life hack. Okay. <laughs> this was only discovered by a woman in the last week, apparently. Did you know on the bottom of every single Bigfoot bottle, for the last 40 years or 50 years, I thought something like that, 30, 40 years, engraved in the glass is a positive affirmation. Like what? Words like hope. I'll, I'll, I'll try and find some. Um, you uh, couldn't have whipped this one up earlier? What's that? <laughs> what, the words, yeah. what the words are? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, but there's... there's Hope and um, live life well, etc. Those what, engraved into the glass, into the bottle. Did you know that? No, no, didn't you know. didn't, because no one knew it. Because Bigfoot's has never advertised it. And do you know why they're in the bottle? I don't. Because the owner of Bigfoot's read a book by a Japanese author called Erasu who in 1940 claimed that the quality of water is improved if the water container is inscribed with positive affirmations like live life well, happiness, hope, love. Equally, if the water container is inscribed with words like evil or nastiness or death, the water will taste 
poorly. Ah, now this the so only hang on, wait, wait, so it. well, hang on a sec. So that yep. clearly must be what is uh, on the bottom of every Pepsi bottle. Oh, there you go. We're getting into that war, are we? But this oh, is yeah. serious. So, so unbeknownst to all of us who've drunk Bigfoot cordials over the years, there has been. Very, and the reason I don't know them all because they change them all the time. It's it's any positive word, you know. That this one, the one that was advertised, had the word hope on it, so that's the one that people are talking about. But apparently, they've had different ones, and they're not telling people who they are, what they are, because they've never advertised it, never made a song and dance, and they change from year to year, time to time. But I bet you, from now on, a lot of people are going to start looking at the bottom of Bigfoot bottles. Was uh, do you think that the owner sort of hoped that one day, decades later, oh, very good hope, yeah, st- stumble upon this discovery and it would become a big deal? No, apparently this Japanese author's philosophy demands uh, silence, and it's not a marketing tool, and it's just to improve the quality of the liquid within the bottle through positive energy. I wonder how the woman who discovered it came to be looking at the bottom of it. Correct. Well, I'll tell you what, it's amazing. For the millions of bottles they've sold to millions of people over the over the duration, it's taken that long for somebody to see underneath the bottle. Where'd you it's say a, the story, incidentally? Very small writing. Where'd you say the story? I was it was on news, it was on a range of news um, outlets yesterday. Okay. All right. No, well, that, that is interesting. Like, that is a very interesting it's odd, little anecdote. It is. Um, all right. My second one, uh, well, this is sort of the same territory. Uh, I just alluded to at the end of my first one. It's about the media sort of dwelling on stuff and should it or shouldn't it. Um, and this one uh, came up, emerged late last night, and uh, the story is up there. Today, while I say story, uh, my question is, is it a story? And that is about, uh, on the Herald Sun site, uh, a story about the separation of Richmond coach Damien Hardwick from his wife, Danielle. And uh, I saw that, and they did give it a fair degree of prominence. In fact, it was a lead story uh, last night on their website. And um, I did read it. It made me read it. Uh, and I just pondered that thing about, is this a story or is it not a story? And then the obvious uh, comparison is the story about Nathan Buckley separating from his wife, Tanya, a couple of weeks back. And I was asking myself a range of questions. You know, is is it the same thing? Are either of them stories? Is uh, the Buckley one more of a story because Tanya has been, you know, reasonably prominent, I guess, in in public life to a degree. Um, And that, I guess, is my my uncomfortable sort of feeling about the Hardwick story is basically around the fact that uh, Danielle has resolutely shied away from the spotlight. In fact, I, I can honestly say the picture of her um, in the accompanying photo on the website last night, that is the first time I have seen her. So I, I really felt sorry for her with that story. I thought, look, she's made a very conscious decision to stay out of the public eye. Is this in the public interest? And there's that old question about, is it interesting to the public and is it in the public interest? 
Well, plenty of people would say it isn't interesting to the public. Plenty of people would say it is. Is it in the public interest? I would say the answer to that is definitely no. So I sort of, I'm on the fence on this one because I do understand I'm not having a go. I'm not even having a go at the Herald Sun for once, to be honest, Um, because I I sort of understand why people would consider it a story. But, geez, I'm not comfortable with it, particularly when one party to the equation has done everything they can to avoid the limelight. It's a, you know, and in these days of saturation media and the game being bigger than ever, and uh, it's a question we're going to be asking ourselves more and more, I think, and it's just, I don't know, difficult ethical um, uh, battleground, I think, to counter. How do you you see that, Fine? Yeah, I don't think it's newsworthy. It appeared in the social pages more than the anywhere else. And, well, you're a public figure. It's funny. I was thinking, I wonder if a if there was a separation from a coach, you know, if, if a coach uh, and a wife separated or divorced of a team that finished 14th and hadn't won a flag in 10 years, Damien Hardwick, three flags in four years, more people know his name that aren't football people that might, oh, gee, be yeah. interested in that sort of thing. Is is he in rarefied air because of his success? The only reference ever to his wife was, I can't remember, what was it in a news conference once that he brought up Mrs Hardwick? Oh, would laugh? No, well, he's done it a few times. That's what I was going to say. I mean, people who are saying, yes, this is a story, they would argue that, that he is actually referred to her directly several times. Um, yeah, interesting, the references, Mrs Hardwick. Um, but, yeah, I, I think he did that once and it had a sort of good reaction. So he's gone with that several times over the years. Um, again, does that constitute enough of an argument to make it news or not? Gee, I, I don't know. I, I find myself, you know, look, I'm, I'm a journalist and nearly... 40 years experience, but I find myself asking those sorts of questions all the time now, you know, gee, is this a story? Is that a story? I don't know. There's so much. I mean, that's, we haven't even touched on the Rebecca Judd, Nadia Bartel story. In fact, I had a good reaction to a tweet the other day. The Herald Sun had a story about Beck Judd is stepping back from her media commitments because she's a busy mum or something. And, uh, I retweeted it and put on top, breaking uh, Herald Sun facing content crisis uh, because she literally is in that paper every day, either she or Nadia. That's if they're not the same person. So how much, how newsworthy is any of that stuff? I think plenty of people would say not at all, but sadly, um, you could probably also argue a reflection of the way society is headed and that is in the direction of shallowness. Um, all right, that's enough of my second one. What's yours? Well, I'm sure you will be all over this, but haven't we had before I do talk about the person I'm referring to, hasn't sport been hit with some passings in recent times, especially soccer? Maradona quickly followed by Italian great Paolo Rossi, then former Liverpool manager Gerard Houllier, all passing away in quick succession. It was quite yep. shocking, all of them. Yeah. And Australian cricket received a, 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 well, not just Australian cricket, Australian sport lost one of their greatest 
in the last couple of days with the passing of a, a true sporting all-rounder in Eric Freeman, mm. who played 11 tests for Australia between 1968 and 1970. He was a, a big, strong, fast bowler and a very capable batsman who was prone, according to Ian Chappell, to rushes of blood, but really could have even been a better batsman with a little bit more uh, patience and, and selective shot making. Could have been right up amongst the best. Could have been a great all-rounder. As it was, he was a very good all-rounder who was brilliant for South Australia, very good for Australia in 11 tests. And he also played 116 games for Port Adelaide in the Sandful, 1965 Premiership team member, and really a star turn for the Port Adelaide Magpies. So described as a great sporting all-rounder, passed away in his mid-70s. And uh, in later years became a very high, highly respected media commentator. And Yes, yes. Um, also, and this is always a great sign, isn't it? I, I was having a look at the tributes posted by various South Australian media people and they all remarked on how helpful he was to people who were sort of new to the business. So I always think that's a, a great attribute and when it comes from someone who was a you know a bit of a sporting star themselves, I think it's even more laudable. So... Um, yeah, condolences to the whole Freeman clan, but obviously Eric left a fairly important legacy. Uh, all right, and a segue there to my final one, uh, talking about cricket. Um, BBL, finally, we're up to BBL 10, and I was watching a game the other night. Funnily enough, it ended up being arguably the most entertaining game yet of the, this 10th season, that was between uh, the Sydney Thunder, who got up uh, with some great batting from Daniel Sams uh, at the end of the innings against the Brisbane Heat. And it uh, wasn't, wasn't a bad game, but I couldn't help but notice um, just the amount of cachet that the BBL appears to have lost. Um, the crowds, I'm pretty sure the crowds have done a consistent downward turn over the last three seasons. Pretty sure the TV ratings are in that same boat. Uh, and this started happening. Uh, hopefully there's no link here, but um, I was doing a pre-Big Bash radio show on Macquarie Sports Radio uh, to three seasons back. And um, you killed it. Well, I didn't kill it, but it was a, that was a not a great season. There was some pretty low-scoring and spin bowlers really came to the fore and, and were sort of operating in a containment sense rather than a wicket-taking sense. It just seemed to lose a bit of its sparkle. And I don't think it, it's regained it. And it's just one of those things. Look, I'm a traditionalist with cricket, but I watch anything. And I have really enjoyed games of T20 in the past, but the more of it I watch, the more it just... It is so sameish. There are so many games that are pretty much the same sort of thing. It's sort of reduced the special feeling you get with big sixes and fours because they're just routine now. Um, it doesn't challenge the bowlers enough. And 20 overs aside, I mean, there's just so little room for variation um, that whilst the positive is it's made me sort of appreciate the variables of test cricket a lot more, I think, you know, if T20 is the format which we're hanging our sort of financial hat on, and there's no doubt that is the case with the game globally, I think we're in a bit of trouble because the luster in Australia, definitely, 
has very much worn off. And um, I just wonder where that's leaving the game as a whole down the track. I, I've got my concerns, Finey. Yeah, I think I think uh, test cricket's in the ascendancy. If Coley would have been here for all the tests, this would have been one of the most eagerly awaited series in living memory. As it is, it's exciting. But BBL fails on a number of fronts and a couple of them of their own doing, so no pity from this corner. The main problem is that it's... And I wonder if those uber critics of AFLW who just can't watch it because it's not great football watch BBL because it is substandard compared to the IPL. We are really talking about a... Look, 2020. Oh, the IPL is great to watch. I don't have a team, but the batting is brilliant against the best bowling in the world. And at the very top level, it works because it's not as predictable and formulaic as the BBL is, which you brightly pointed out, Rowan. By the time we get around to the BBL, there's a lot of Australian cricketers I've never heard of, or I thought had retired. Very few internationals because there's no international break for the BBL. All the Test Nations are playing at the moment. You're getting some real bits and pieces from here and there, if that. You know, the IPL has has the full battery of West Indian power lords that are still great players. They've got all the best, best stars from Australia and a brilliant collection of locals as well as, you know, the best of every country in the world. It's brilliant to watch Rowan. But BBL ain't, and the two things that they did wrong is they got very greedy very early and doubled or at least doubled the fixture after early successes. You know, the old empresario that tells you to keep them wanting more obviously didn't have a – he wasn't down at BBL Central because they went greedy early. And the other thing, Rowan, is the competition doesn't respect itself, and that's where it falls flat because – Scheduling has meant in recent years that come the finals, many star players are gone playing one-day cricket for Australia. So if you barrack for a team, bad luck because Finch isn't going to be there, Maxwell's not going to be there, and it ruins the whole idea of a grand final for mine. So it doesn't respect itself. It got greedy, and it's not high quality, which is why I watch very little of it. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't disagree with any of that, really. All right, your final one. Well, that was almost it. So I'll make mine very quick. I heard an amazing stat. You know you know how I drive my son to work at 5 a.m. in the morning? I do. I listen to Radio National or whatever it is, 1026, and yep. the BBC's on. So you get a lot of very interesting shows. And one morning is their science show. Did you know that this year scientists predict, and God knows how they work this out, that for the first time in history ever, man-made produce and products on the planet earth will outweigh all natural living matter now all natural living matter is called the biomass and for the first time ever what man has made and created out of natural products i guess in essence will outweigh the natural which is interesting i don't think i even understand what you've said is that a good thing or bad thing no it's just a fact I mean, it, it, it doesn't alter the total weight of the earth, but we have mined and forested and created and built buildings and roads, et cetera, et cetera, you know. So what we have built 
will outweigh all plant life, all animal life, all insect life, all marine life will be outweighed by what we produce. When you so say out, outweigh, do you mean like kilograms? Okay. How do you, how how do they calculate, do you calculate it? Calculate that. I don't know. I wasn't weighed personally. Neither neither was my car or my shoes. So I don't know. I do know that when they weigh us, we have to go naked because our clothes will be in the other pile. Well, I've just started a new uh, diet, so uh, I might be tipping the scales. Hopefully, in favour of no, I can't even tell you which way. I can't. You'll be you'll be tipping it in favour of man-made. Yes, correct. <laughs> uh, all right. No, that was very entertaining and educational. Thanks for letting us all know. <laughs> um, all right. <laughs> Life hacks for this week. Uh, I reckon it's time we uh, went back in time when the world was uh, lighter, I think. Um, (laughs) Talk about our favourite music, movies and TV. Vinyl and video. Pressing rewind on our favourite music, movies and TV. All right, always look forward to this segment. Uh, it's been a more contemporary segment in recent times because we uh, we didn't schedule it well to start with, so we ended up with a, a big glut of 21st century years to look back on in the uh, entertainment, uh, music and uh, TV and movie world. Um, but uh, last week we did 2008. Well, this year we're going all the way back another three years to... 2005 we still have got a couple of oldies up our sleeve but 2005 this week um interesting year for you finey you know what first of all in footy it was and it was an extraordinary year and i loved it for a certain reason which will become apparent later which is quite interesting it was the year in which movie wise I cannot think of more movies I hated being made in a single year. Because <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, I don't like the Star Wars franchise. I don't like the Lord of the Rings franchise. They are overwrought stories being told at snail's pace to maximise ticket sales and revenue and marketing. And they, they're bullshit as far as I'm concerned. Call me an old fuddy-duddy. No, actually, call me. don't call me a nerd. That's what I'm saying. And this was a big year for those franchises. So that sucked, um, but there was there were if you filleted things out, there was good stuff around. Not not great, but good. Well, I've got to say uh, on that positive theme, I've got to say this is probably one of the least favourite years in my life. Um, a bit of a blur, to be honest. Uh, I had a couple of pretty ordinary things happen to me in that year. I lost my dad uh, oh, a week before Christmas. And, um, you know, that toxic relationship I was speaking about the other week, well, I was still in the middle of that. So uh, the fact that I emerged alive is probably cause enough for celebration and a big hello to that other person. Um, all right, let's go. <laughs> this is going to end in tears, these continual references. Uh, let's go back and look at music. Uh, this was interesting. A couple of honourable mentions for me. Uh, Foo Fighters brought out In Your Honour. Now, I'm a bit like a lot of people, the Foo Fighters. I absolutely love their first two albums, but it's been a a gentle downward spiral since then. But I thought this one, In Your Honour, is uh, certainly one of the best of the rest for me. Um, What's on that? No Way Back, 
uh, Best of You. Uh, they're probably the best known songs off that. So close. Audio Slave, which of course was the uh, meeting of uh, three quarters of Rage Against the Machine with Soundgarden vocalist Chris Cornell. They brought out Out of Exile. Uh, okay album, but yeah, a bit like Audio Slave, not as good as the, the real thing. Uh, now, the album I've gone with, this is um, some you know real music devotees out there going to hear this and go, oh, you are kidding. Well, these are one of those bands that you, if you're a, a rock, bit of a rock pig like me, Finey, you're not supposed to like because I see this band as being uh, new metal, I would call them, a bit like Corn and Limp Bizkit, and I, I really don't like those bands. And these guys uh, came to them late. They're from Chicago and they've had about seven or eight albums now, but this, I think, was their third. Um, this is just one of those albums where I, I heard the first song off it and I thought, gee, I like that. And then I went through it and I think there's 14 tracks on it and I really, really like and play regularly about 10 of them. So I made a public confession yesterday. The album I'm talking, uh, the band I'm talking about is Disturbed. And the album is called 10,000 Fists. And um, they're from Chicago. They are new metal. It's So what do I mean? It's a heavy metal sound, but supplemented with plenty of synthesized sounds as well and, and effects and stuff. Also a very, very distinctive vocalist. Uh, his name is Dave Damon. And there's a fantastic parody, actually, of Disturbed on YouTube where they do a, a bit of a piss take of how he sings. I'm, uh, I, I was tossing up, do I try and replicate it? It's sort of like this staccato, ah, ah, ah. he does a lot of that. And yamana, yamana. It's, yeah, I can't approximate it. I shouldn't have tried. But uh, I really like this album. Um, highlights for me, the title track, 10,000 Fists, Just Stop, uh, Deify, which is a political song, sort of having a go at, George W. Bush in the um, midst of the Iraq War, uh, Stricken, uh, Sons of Plunder, I'm Alive, uh, Decadence, Forgiven, Avarice. Uh, it's just you know, big sound, big, strong songs, and uh, I like it. I really like it. So a bit of a skeleton in the closet for me, and I'm sure a lot of people who know what I usually listen to and like what I usually listen to will be going, what the... But there you go. I'm, I'm out and I'm proud. And uh, 10,000 Fists by Disturbed is my album of 2005. What do you got? I love, by the way, I love the name of the album and that'll come back shortly when we do movies. But I've got just one song because unlike you, Rowan, I stopped buying albums long before 2005. And I like music. I love music. Love music, but don't love the full repertoire of a band necessarily so this is a band that maybe you enjoy i'm not really into the killers uh no i've never really been into them i mean i don't dislike them but yeah anyway and go on so i came about this song in a very unusual way look it's mr brightside and it's one of those songs obviously i've I'd heard before because it was a, a big hit but i've only come to like it as the now you know i love my darts and yes. every player has walk-on music. And sort of the new shining light in darts has really come to the fore in the last couple of years. Nathan Aspinall comes on to Mr Brightside. 
the audience loves it when there is big crowds at the darts. And it's actually, I found it to be a really sort of cool, catchy song. And what, because I've come to it through darts, I, I find it, I, I can't reconcile the fact that the Killers are an American band out of Las Vegas, because to me, it is such a British sounding song. It just, maybe because of the setting that I've seen it in, but it is so English to me, you know, just the chorus and the whole construct of the song strikes me as very British and, and the sort of British pop that I like or, you know, pop rock that I like. No, so, I, I absolutely agree with that. No, I, yeah, no, spot on. It's an interesting topic for discussion one day about American bands that sound English and English bands that sound American yeah, because yeah, yeah, yeah. there is a, a, yeah, there is a definite sound for both. And I, yeah, if I hadn't known, I would have thought they were English. And uh, confession here, like I, I know so little about the killers that um, when uh, I probably only was inspired to ever listen to Mr. Brightside after Jack Rewalt jumped up on stage with them after the 2017 grand final and yep. started singing it. It's sort of the first time I took notice of it and thought, you know, I'll, I'll just go and watch the clip. And then I watched the clip and I thought, yeah, it is a pretty good song that. So um, I know, look, they're, they're a very popular band. And if you're hearing this and you're about to inundate me with killer stuff on Twitter, don't. <laughs> so, in fact, because normally I get a, a little castigated for not consuming the album, just the single, but we're a dem on this one. We're ad a dem, yeah. as they say in Latin. Well, I've got to say, I've... I've tweeting a lot less music these days because every time I, I watch something, I thought, oh, yeah, I want to tweet that and share it with people. I know I'm going to get about a dozen responses with people saying, oh, you got to listen to this, you got to listen to this. And you just can't, you know. So, um, uh, yeah, but, yeah, I, uh, very much a, uh, a singles band for me, The Killers, or, in fact, one single. Uh, sort of around that period, Friends Ferdinand were big around then too. In fact, I think it was a year before. Remember Take Me Out by Friends Ferdinand? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I liked Friends Ferdinand for a while. I, yeah. saw them at the, I saw them at Big Day Out. What were they like? Were they good? That's when I stopped liking them. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, you know, some bands just don't translate on stage. And they the reason I like them is because they reminded me of, of old old rock bands, you know, with a drummer and two guitarists and a singer. Yeah. But But in real life, I don't think they're great guitarists or drummers or singers. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's interesting. This period in my life, for um, reasons I detailed, is just a, a bit of a blur. I probably should have been listening to Leonard Cohen or something suitably. <laughs> now, dark you see, I, dark I told you to listen to a song last week, and I bet you haven't. Uh, what was it? I, I did write it down. I, I advocated again to you and to other listeners, The Struggle by Scroobius Pip. Oh, that's right. I did write it down. I'm writing it again now as we speak. All right, I've written it down. It's a fascinating um, song. All right, let's get on to movies now. Yep. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on movies. Uh, we had the big ticket items, didn't we? We had a Revenge of the Sith, which I have seen. You know, so many movies in the last 20 years I have seen and then I cannot, literally cannot recall a single thing about them. Revenge of the Sith is one of them. My son will be horrified. Batman Begins, that was big. I think I've seen that. Don't remember a thing about it. The one I thought you might pick, actually, Finey, is uh, the Johnny Cash movie, Walk the Line. That was written down till I saw my cult favourite. 
yeah, right. walk the line. I was all ready to do it. Oh, okay, okay. Um, and 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 then I I saw an Australian movie that is so hard to watch, but I was almost going to do that. Well, I really struggled. Uh, I have seen Walk the Line, uh, and you know I'm what the Australian movie is? What was it? Wolf Creek. Oh, yeah, I haven't seen that, but yeah. Oh, that's not easy to watch. No. That is cruelty persona, you know, and the John Jarrett story out of that is horrific. Well, at the opposite uh, end of the spectrum to Wolf Creek and squirming around your seat, I've gone the feel-good movie, and uh, it is one of the uh, thousands, literally thousands, of animated features that we've seen over the last 30 or 40 years. I went for Madagascar. Uh, about a collection of animals who live in the Central Park Zoo. Uh, there is uh, Marty the uh, zebra and uh, Alex the lion, Melman the giraffe, and they are voiced over by uh, Ben Stiller, Chris Rock and David Schwimmer. Uh, the plot's a fairly simple one. Uh, Marty's having his 10th birthday and He's a bit bored with life in the zoo, wants to explore the wild and wants to escape. And there's a group of rogue penguins in the zoo who do escape. So he goes out with them and the lion and the uh, giraffe follow suit. And uh, they somehow commandeer a ship, which the penguins, clearly pretty smart penguins, uh, are taking to Antarctica. But there's a kerfuffle on the boat and they're boxes get knocked off and they wash up in Madagascar. And then thus ensues a struggle for life itself up against the um, natural habitats of the island of Madagascar. There's a cast of thousands doing the voiceovers. Uh, it is pretty funny, though. Um, again, I've got to be particular. I've got, I've got to be honest. So even all, all these animated, uh, big picture animated films, I struggle to remember the plots of five minutes after I've seen them. I did need a bit of a refresher on Madagascar and then I watched the trailer and I still wasn't sure what happened because see, aren't some trailers for movies just incredibly bad and misleading? And anyway, um, so uh, yeah, Madagascar is my choice. I remember I did take the kids to see it and I do remember that I enjoyed it. And uh, that was a rare thing for me in 2005. What's your movie? Well, you maybe you should have watched this movie because it, it probably was of the mindset that you're in. Now, are you familiar with the work of Rob Zombie? Uh, oh, I know who he is, yeah. yeah uh, Muso, sort of um, thrash metal band, a producer of TV ads, TV clip, film clips, movie uh, film clips for other bands, and famously... Some a couple a, a series of incredibly violent but sort of funny horror slash not comedies yeah sort of comedies of the utmost utmost depravity. Now the original in the series dealing with the Firefly family, and there's a bit of a theme here. You, you know Firefly as a surname to a certain character. Uh, Rufus, Rufus E. Firefly from the Marx Brothers. Yeah. yeah, so the Firefly family are a family of um, maniacal misfits out in the somewhere. And the original movie was House of 10,000 Corpses because if you end up in their house, you ain't coming out. 
and what they do to innocent travellers is horrific. Quite well made in that the travellers are, are, are normal people and they're, they've got normal relationships with the father who's a policeman, etc. But then the, the uber horror takes hold. But the, the sequel in 2005, even better, The Devil's Rejects. Now, it stars Sid Haig as a character that has, he's sort of a clown because he's got clown paint on his face that's washed off. He is Captain Spaulding, another character from the Marks from Groucho. Um, it, this movie ends to the music of Freebird and the most amazing final shootout scene you'll ever see. Uh, the actors in it include Rob Zombie's wife, they're not well-known actors. I just want to point you and the listeners, if you go to YouTube, there's a scene from Devil's Rejects, and if you type in Don't You Like Clowns, you'll get the scene. It's absolute movie gold. I've got to tell you, if you love, if you love violence and, and horror all in the one package, this isn't too violent, by the way, or horrific. Uh, comedy, I mean. It's actually quite funny even though there is a nasty punch to the face of an innocent woman in it. Um, it's a brilliant scene. Don't You Like Clowns from Devil's Rejects 2005. All right. Sounds interesting. I've, I've got to say, though, I was already getting enough violence and horror in real life to... <laughs> to <laughs> yep. oh, I've got to stop doing this. Um, all right. Let's go to TV. And uh, my TV choice... Oh, this is a funny one. So, among other um, programs that came out in 2005, uh, Weeds, uh, which I did enjoy for a while, uh, about the uh, the mum and her daughter who sell marijuana to make a living. Uh, Grey's Anatomy, very popular series that began in 2005. Criminal Minds, another one which began. Uh, I'm going for, I only discovered this years later, and I must say... Um, as a bit of a piss take, I started watching this because I, I remember seeing the ads when it was on at the time. You get oh god, a bit overblown. So anyway, started watching Prison Break, um, and very quickly got hooked. That began in oh, Damon, our producer likes that one. He's a Prison Break fan. Can I tell um, you something? My life is currently plagued by Prison Break because my wife is immersed in it, and I cannot get near the TV when she's at home because it is 24-7 prison break. Really? Oh, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, is she, yeah, don't worry, is she watching it on a channel or is it DVD or something? Or? No, on a channel, on, on, I don't know, streaming Netflix, I don't know. Well, it, okay. does, it does suck you in and uh, essentially the plot is about two brothers. Uh, one is Lincoln Burroughs, played by Australia's own Dominic Purcell, and his brother, Michael Schofield, played by Wentworth Miller. Now, Link has been wrongly sentenced for the murder of the vice president's brother and sentenced to death. And uh, his brother, Michael, is uh, convinced by his innocence, knows he's innocent. And he's a brilliant uh, structural engineer, uh, Michael. So he uh, devises an incredibly elaborate plan to uh, free his brother from jail. This plan, uh, rather uh, riskily, involves him committing a major crime, being sentenced to jail at the same jail, 
where he is going to implement his brilliant plan to get both of them out of prison. The plan involves tattooing the um, uh, the floor plan of the jail on himself. And uh, it's just like, yeah, you can imagine where it goes from there. That's just the beginning. Um, he encounters along the way various inmates, uh, Fernando Sucre, um, the, uh, I think, star of the show, Theodore Teabag Bagwell. <laughs> oh, yeah, Damon likes Teabag. Uh, except when I heard Teabag, I was always thinking of uh, Big Brother. Um, and one of my favourite characters, the warden, who they're constantly at loggerheads with, Brad Bellick. Um, so, yeah, look, the, the, it's incredibly unlikely stuff. It get, there's about a hundred times where something you think they're about to get out or you think something's about to happen and then right at the last second something's foiled and they're back to square one again. Um, there were four series originally and uh, we bid farewell to the last of them uh, and apparently Michael, who the last scene of which you see him looking at his bloody grave, uh, season four. Incredibly, the show was resurrected in 2016 with a season five. I haven't seen that, but I'm told it's pretty ordinary. But uh, look, it is, is very engrossing. It's, um, it, it does really suck you in. It does go off the rails, though, because the first two seasons, absolutely gripping. And then I remember um, season three, so they've all escaped at the end of season two. Season three, the bulk is um, about them being held prisoners in a Panamanian jail a degraded Panamanian jail, which is run by the inmates because it's too violent for any guards. So they let them look after it themselves. And I remember one stage early in season three, seeing this scene where Bellick, the former warden, now prisoner in Panama, is running around in his underpants um, because someone's taken his clothes, looking at everyone else going, what is going on here? Um, and it gets more unlikely from there. But it was good fun and I did enjoy watching it. Prison Break. Well, I'm going for a show that started in 2005 and is still running to this very day and is a trailblazer and has spawned many, um, not copycats, but many similar programs worldwide. I don't know if you're into this genre. It's reality TV unscripted. It's called The Deadliest Catch and it follows the fortunes of a number of large vessels that take on some of the most dangerous fishing in the world, fishing for crab in the Bering Sea. Can I just interrupt you there very briefly? And yep. You know what's funny about that? I read a, there was a great piece I read online yesterday about uh, the Trump era and the culture wars that have ensued. And it, it was sort of defining liberals against uh, Trump Republicans and coming up with sort of cultural touchstones for each. And in TV terms, it said that liberals, uh, you know, Democrat voters, liberals, uh, their definitive show was Orange is the New Black. And, and Trump voters, their definitive show was the one you just mentioned. Yeah, well, I can, I can imagine that. It, it's got a bit of a sort of um, redneck about it. But I find it quite engrossing because I like I like the actual hunt for the crab there's three type of crab they go after the prized alaskan king crab and then there are seasons for smaller apilio and baradai crab 
But the captains of these boats become major characters, as do crew members. There's a lot of turnover of crew members. There's a lot of danger. We've seen people die on this program. We've seen not a boat feature on the program, but another boat in the fleet go down where all souls on board were lost. Very sad episode. Uh, the boats that feature on the program are the Cornelia Marie, who was captained by Phil Harris. Now, the captains are generally, you know, hard-living... Um, Crusty old sea dogs. Yeah, with cigarettes in their mouth and drinkers and drug takers. And Phil Harris, whose kids are a big part of the show, sadly passed away during one of the seasons of a heart attack. Another of the main captain, Sig Hansen, on the Northwestern, had a near-fatal heart attack but has come back. And his daughter, actually, interestingly enough, shares the captaining duties and is very good because they have to negotiate some horrific seas. So what are uh, they fishing for? Crab, only crab. I said, you know, they just the big crabs. Okay. Um, and gee, all that effort to, to catch crabs. I, I was when I went to Europe, I was able to get it one night in Austria. Anyhow, that's another story. Boom boom. Pardon? Boom boom. That's no boom boom. That's a true story. Um, there's the saga, the southern wind, the summer bay, and the wizard. You know about catching crabs. I went through all the, I was embarrassed, you know, I didn't tell anybody and you have to get this lotion and, and apply it. And each morning you'd look at your undies and there was a little harvest of tiny dead crabs. Nowadays you'd just shave your pubes off and be done with it, wouldn't you? Isn't that the way to go? Can we Great. get back to the um, uh, the crustacean variety? Yeah, no, I'll finish with it. It has spawned a lot of similar shows on Discovery Channel like Aussie Lobster Men and Abalone Hunters and Basically, anything you can pull out of the sea now warrants a, a TV series, but this was the original and the best. Deadliest catch. Uh, I'm sorry. I don't think I'm going to recover from the visual imagery that you just spawned in a whole lot of now tortured minds. Um, all right. No, it does sound interesting. It does. <laughs> all right. Let's finish off. Just... Don't speak of it again. Uh, let's finish off with a footy memory. 2005. I reckon you think 2005. Everyone thinks about one thing. The famous Sydney drought-breaking premiership, first flag for the Swans for 72 years. Uh, what moment epitomises that? Well, it can only be one choice, Finey. And it is, of course, Leo Barry's mark. Arguably, oh, no, I'd say Jezelinko's is still the most famous mark, but Leo Barry's probably, I reckon the second most famous mark in football history. Incredible effort, of course. Everyone's seen it, uh, but I'll recap it anyway. Uh, West Coast, uh, a chance to kick a goal. I get a point from the kick in. The ball ends up in the long arms of Dean Cox. He pumps the ball into the teeth of goal. An enormous pack flies for the ball. And in from a side floats weeping Leo Barry to grasp the ball with vice-like hands, falls to the ground as the final siren heralds a famous Sydney premiership. It is an iconic moment in football history. The cynic in me finally would say, thank God that happened, because prior to that, it was one of the ugliest, least watchable grand finals in history, uh, probably saved as a spectacle by that incredible last couple of seconds, but a wonderful football moment. Uh, controversial, perhaps in hindsight, because uh, 
have a look at it, any close-up of the photo and you can see Ty Canelli very clearly tugging on Ashley Sampy's jumper. Technically speaking, probably a free kick to West Coast, but you'd see them let go far more often than not. Just too much happening in that incredibly big pack of players. Great mark uh, by any stretch. And in the last second of a grand final with less than a kick, the difference, absolutely an incredible moment. Leo Barry's mark is my footy moment of 2005. Finally, what's yours? You know, we often measure as supporters a great season by what our team achieves. But when you're one of, when you're a supporter of one of the downtrodden clubs and you've lived a life through the schoolyard and mates at the cricket club and just in life who barrack for powerhouses, giving it to you in various doses of patronising comments and outright insults, you learn to hate the power clubs. So 2005, for supporters of clubs like a, a St Kilda or a Footscray or North Melbourne maybe, is a year to be cherished because it never had happened previously and will never happen again, actually, when you think about the likelihood of this happening. And that is that really the five power clubs of my time in Melbourne finished last, second last, third last, fourth last and fifth last. Carlton were on the bottom. Collingwood second bottom, Hawthorne third bottom, your Essendon fourth bottom, and Richmond five from the bottom. The bottom five teams, really the teams that have tormented me with their supporters over the duration, that have won all the flags, had all the glory. You're talking about the power clubs of the AFL, Carlton and Essendon, most premierships, Collingwood next, Hawthorne the greatest team of our lifetime, and Richmond the current superpower. In 2005, they were all shit house, and I loved it. You know, I'd never actually taken note of that until just then. That is quite remarkable, isn't it? Uh, and your mob had a chance to make an even bigger statement. Uh, oh, at... Yeah, we, could, we, we up the other end, we ruined our, we <laughs> we fluffed our lines completely. You certainly did. Uh, very well placed at three quarter time of the preliminary final before allowing the Swans to kick seven unanswered goals in the last quarter. They uh, had, after week one of the finals, where we had a brilliant win against Adelaide in Adelaide, a great yeah. game, with the week off, you normally expect to be cherry ripe. We lose from that team to the preliminary final, Hamill, Kashitsky, Sam Fisher. Mm. So where, where teams normally, you know, absolutely fill up with the week off, we lose three players. Yeah, Sydney did well, didn't they? They trailed for all of that uh, semi against Geelong, of course, won by yep. Nick yes. Davis. Uh, they're then uh, behind at three-quarter time in the preliminary and, uh, and then, of course, uh, hanging on desperately in the grand final. Uh, I guess the gods were definitely on their side. And the but, AFL allowing Barry Hall. The Barry Hall thing, of course. Yeah. Uh, all right, that is 2005, done and dusted in music, movies, TV and football. I say we finish off this final show before Christmas with a good rant. On Footyology, the rant of. All right, a Christmassy rant. I guess the nature of these doesn't often fit with uh, 
the emotions you're supposed to have in the lead up to uh, to Christmas or uh, good bon homie and and uh, you know um, farewell the brother and all that sort of stuff. But uh, I can still get a bit cranky about things. Finey, can you? Oh yeah, I'm getting cranky about Christmas. All right. Well, uh, I'll leave the Christmas stuff with you. I'm off in another uh, direction, which when you hear it, probably won't surprise you. So count me in. Three, two, rant away, my friend. I'm pissed off with the US political system, Finey. Yeah, sure, it hasn't helped that the actual president himself has been doing his best to undermine democracy, but they don't make it easy on themselves. Here, we have an election, people vote, and the party with the most seats forms a government. Pretty simple. Over there, though, it seems like that's just one step in a tortured process of negotiations. Their votes are actually for electoral college representatives who then cast a vote for a president. That's supposed to be a formality, of course, but when the president happens to be a sport brat who literally won't accept the decision of the umpire, you have to hope those representatives will actually do the right thing. Then there's a legal system which leaves open the possibility, no matter how remote, of judges effectively invalidating the votes of more than 80 million people. Again, an entire democracy waiting on a group of Supreme Court judges to do the right thing. All of which has meant that Joe Biden, a full six weeks after the US election, has only now been officially proclaimed the next president of the United States. In effect, he's now won this election three times on election day, in the courtroom, and in the Electoral College Hall. It's bizarre, but there is a considerable upside, and that's that Donald Trump has now lost the presidency three times. And could there be a sweeter payoff for anyone who has suffered through the past four years of his infantile tantrums than to witness that? In retrospect, it's been quite amusing watching the world for four years vainly hoping that this definitive man-baby was going to somehow grow into the role of effectively the most powerful man in the world. I mean, Trump only had to string a coherent sentence together and stop dribbling on himself for five seconds for a posse of po-faced commentators to announce, this was the moment Donald Trump became president. But that never actually happened. Indeed, Trump's behaviour over that time, and particularly with his political demise approaching, has become so deranged and delusional that I'm waiting for the same commentators to face the camera with sombre tones on Biden's inauguration day as Trump is physically removed, kicking and screaming from the White House and announced, this was the moment the US realised it might have made a mistake electing Trump president in 2016. There are obvious metaphors for how Trump has handled all this, like the kid who gets out while batting and instead of handing it over, wants to take his bat and ball and go home. Except it's not really a metaphor. That is actually happening, which is going to make Biden's inauguration day of January 20th pretty interesting. Will Trump bother turning up? If he does, will he sit there sulking, arms crossed? Or will we actually get to see, as Biden has sworn in, a 72-year-old man kicking, screaming, as the feds pick him up from the Oval Office and cart him out? Don't laugh. That actually may happen. And if it does, I think the rest of the world should act in accordance with the tone Trump has repeatedly set since his election four years ago. And that means, I want to repeat, of that famous South Park episode where Cartman kills Scott Tenement's parents and feeds them to him in a chili con carne. Like when Tenement receives the news and becomes distressed at that revelation, I want to see Biden run over to Trump 
and start licking the tears from his cheeks while the entire rest of the world starts chanting at Trump in unison, loser, loser, loser. Nothing, not even the deaths of now more than 300,000 people from coronavirus will be guaranteed to have Trump feeling worse. And while that might not have made the shit show we've all had to put up with the past four years indulging Donald Trump any more palatable, Jesus, it's going to be fun. <laughs> I want the kicking and screaming version, Ray, by the way. I think it's going to happen. Like, I really do. It's just... What, with him just hanging on by his fingertips to the round table as he's being pulled by the legs by FBI agents. I think it is going to come to that. Incidentally, if you want to see a perhaps prelude to that, there's a great clip. I think the show is called The President. It was on in the US, but it's a, a piss take on Donald Trump. And there's one episode where he goes to visit a school and he's having such a great time playing with the kids that Mike Pence comes in to take him out and he bursts into a tantrum and has to physically be dragged from the <laughs> from the classroom. I reckon we're going to see a repeat. Anyway, it's going to be guaranteed good viewing, whatever he does, January the 20th, Joe Biden's inauguration. All right, that was fun. All right, uh, I'm ready to count you in, Finey. Three, two, one, rant. Now, you may not want somebody who's Jewish playing the role of Scrooge or Christmas Grinch, but why not? Most of the main players in this story were Jewish, weren't they? This is not what David Jones or Myers will have you believe is another wonderful Christmas as they trot out their old ads of happy families preparing for that one day when we all get together and show a bit of bonhomie. Because it's not that sort of year and it's not that sort of Christmas, despite what the marketing people want you to think. Why isn't it? Let's face it, when we do our Christmas shopping at the big major stores and shopping centres, we've still got to mask up, gagging in our own burps and bad breath. Unfortunately, they remind us it's not a normal Christmas. China reminds us it's not a normal Christmas as they continue to ban most things that we import, latterly coal, and have even taken up a position just in the Torres Strait with a mega partnership with a Papua New Guinea fishing co-op that has them on our doorstep. Not a normal Christmas. Oh, by the way, if you think lobster prices are going down because the Chinese don't want them anymore, you're right. But it's no bargain. Rock lobster, which of course is 30% plastic-like hard carapace that's inedible, is not rock bottom, the old rock lobster, at $90 a kilo. She's still a good spend. And speaking of spend, oh, don't you love the petrol companies? They're not even bothering with lifting the prices up on a Thursday or a Friday. It's full volume all December, $1.50 a litre. And believe me, there's a lot of profit taking there. They're saying making up for lost grounds for those poor petrol stations that had to put up. No, actually, they didn't close. They didn't have to put up with bloody anything. No, it's not a normal Christmas. 30,000 max at the MCG. That's not going to be a normal day after Christmas. So Myers, David Jones and anybody else that wants to tell you, thank goodness that tough year's over and we're back to happy times, they're only doing it to suck you in because the truth is we're going to have to wait till next Christmas for a good old Christmas. 
Yes, uh, agree entirely. We're a couple of Grinches, aren't we? But I think the whole world is entitled to be a bit Grinchy in 2020. It has been a year we will never forget for just about all the wrong reasons. Uh, but that <clears throat> is pretty much that for the Footyology podcast for 2020. Uh, good rinse to 2020. Not good rinse to us, though, because we will be back in mid-January. But uh, look, before we go, I want to say quite seriously, um, a big thank you to you, Finey, for your contribution over this interminable year with the podcast and, of course, Footyology Final Sign, the live streams Thursday, Friday nights, which we really hope will return for 2021. Uh, if you know any good uh, sponsors, send them our way because we're after them. Uh, a special thank you to our wonderful producer, Damon Jackman. Uh, he really is the brains of the operation, puts up with all our crap, puts his show together every week, does the Twitter live stream as well. Uh, he's a great man, a very, very talented young man, Damon Jackman. Uh, seek him out for all your audio visual needs um so thanks mate really appreciate your help and the biggest thanks to you our audience out there uh this is what the fifth year of our little podcast we're about to head into year six um it's been great fun uh we know a lot of you have been listening from the word go so i can't really overstate how much we value your support you can continue to support us if you can at uh, our Patreon page on the Footyology website or by the ACAST supporter feature here when you listen uh, to our podcast on whatever platform. Uh, anything to add there quickly, Fanny, before we leave? Well, of course, our great sponsors through lockdown and release from the shackles, they've been there all the while and they are absolutely rock solid. I speak of the great Andrews Hamburgers, do visit them, especially if you're heading into town from farther afield over Christmas, New Year. 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park, is only a stone's throw from the CBD and the MCG and the tennis, what have you. And I promise you, you'll be wrapped with the results. And Nick Spartels and the boys at West Point Properties, thank you for your continued support. Rowan, I used to, you know, in the early days, working with you was a bit of a roller coaster of an experience, but... Not so anymore. I think we, I think we were, for the best part, smooth sailing under difficult circumstances this year. We worked simpatico. Working with you is an absolute pleasure. You're a, a font of information, as you sometimes accuse me of being, but as listeners have rightly pointed out, some of my information's not correct. You, on the other hand, cross your T's, dot your I's, as for Damon Jackman, anybody that does things that I have no idea about is a genius to me. So I don't know whether Damon is the greatest in his field, but to me, he is the Einstein of, of what he does. I don't even know how to describe it. You called it audiovisual. That reminded me of classes I had back in 1978 at school, the audiovisual class. So I don't know what Damon does. It's beyond my sphere of understanding, but he's Freaking good at it. And as for every individual, every man, woman, child and beast that even for a fleeting moment listened to our podcast, I think on, on behalf of both of us, we are truly, um, you know, 
taken back and and just so thankful of your support. There are many choices out there. We hope ours is a good one. We know time is valuable. And to go to the effort of searching us and listening to us is humbling. Even though I was grinchy in my rant, I wish everybody a great Christmas New Year period. Spend it with family, spend it with friends, spend it with people you like. And hopefully we are those people you like as a podcast in 2021. Catch you then. Uh, very well put, Fawny. Uh, have a, a great Christmas and a safe Christmas and um, a Merry New uh, Merry, no, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, everyone. And we'll catch you again in mid-January. See you later.